Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Merry Christmas! Ah, Christmas. It can be the best time for some of us, or the hardest for those who have lost people or can't afford to celebrate in a way they see fit. Crime rate is at an all-time high during the holidays, but not for murder. It's usually burglary, theft, and sadly suicide. One small town in Washington was about to go from petty crimes to having their world turned upside down by two people who certainly did not make the nice list in 2007. Twenty-five miles outside of Seattle, Washington, lies a rural western community in the city of Carnation. It's a rather small town with only 2,200 residents, stretching a little over 1.1 square miles in size. Carnation is known for its Cascade foothills and the Skohomie River, making it one of the most productive agricultural regions in the Pacific Northwest. The residents who live there spend their time biking, hiking, and fishing. Downtown Carnation is a popular tourist attraction filled with unique shops and restaurants. This is a city where everyone knows everyone and the crime rate is slim to none. That is until Christmas Eve of 2007, when the city of Carnation's joyous holiday turned to a bloody massacre. Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe met online in 2002 at the age of 24 years old. At the time, Michelle was living in Carnation, Washington, and Joseph was living in Glendale, Arizona. He moved to Washington to be with Michelle with the intention of marrying her and starting a life together. For a while, the couple lived in South King County, but would later make the decision to move into a mobile home in Fall City, Washington, only nine minutes outside of Carnation. The rent was $390, which was all they could afford at the time. According to their landlord, Michelle listed her occupation as a night security guard for Nintendo and Joseph was working at Target, which was partially true. Michelle actually just worked as her mother's fill-in for her postal carrier route. The landlord also shared that the couple was fairly quiet and kept to themselves. Michelle was also in the process of starting an auto painting business called Pure Evil Customs with her brother Scott, which they founded in 2002 according to public business records. Okay, I mean, it sounds like they're doing what they had to do to get by. Yeah, almost all of us can relate to that. Take what you can get in the meantime. It doesn't mean it lasts forever. So the landlord said they were quiet and kept to themselves. Did the neighbors agree with that description? Well, according to the neighbors, Michelle and Joseph were seen as local misfits. Joseph was known to come and go from the house all night long during arguments. They could be heard yelling and screaming at each other only to apologize shortly after. One neighbor, Ryan Westbrook, would later tell investigators that they would fight so loudly he was able to hear them a few doors down. He would regularly hear Michelle shouting the following, You have no job, you have no money, you have no life, you're a total loser. End quote. They avoided eye contact, rarely came out of their mobile home, and were indifferent to neighbors trying to be friendly with them. The neighbors only ever noticed the dark side of the couple often seeing them enraged by people trespassing, a car parked in their spot, or a kid and an animal in their front yard. Though she was known to complain about her parents, her mother was seen coming once a week to deliver food and necessities. Money was a frequent conversation with her family, because Michelle would often make it known that they didn't have money and were extremely poor. 
Friends that visited Michelle and Joseph shared that their home was sparsely furnished, and the couple placed black material over their windows, paranoid that neighbors were spying on them. They also claimed that a few neighbors tried breaking in and believed they were out to get them. Friends of Michelle's weren't a big fan of Joseph, stating that he spoke with a speech impediment and was a little weird. He would spend hours talking about his spirit guides, who he believed told him how he should be living his life. Michelle would later tell friends in confidence that Joseph was diagnosed with severe anxiety and was supposed to be on medications and see a therapist, but they couldn't afford it. Due to Michelle losing her job and them not being able to financially support each other, they were forced to move their mobile home onto Michelle's parents' property in the beginning of 2007, despite the toxic relationship there. Man, that all sounds really intense. They were clearly toxic with each other, and Joseph seems to be having some paranoid delusions. Mental health problems played a big role in their relationship. That's why it's so important to be with somebody who supports you mentally and physically. Why was Michelle's relationship with her family toxic, though? Well, for a little background on the two, Michelle Anderson was born in 1978 to Wayne and Judith Anderson. She had two siblings, a brother named Scott and a sister named Mary Victoria. She was known by former classmates in high school as an artistic and sweet girl who preferred to hang out with the unpopular crowd. She would tell her friends that she was the black sheep of the family, making claims that her father would hit her and her mother didn't understand her and was rude towards her. Though she shared that her relationship with her parents was extremely volatile, she had a very loving relationship with her brother, bonding over the shared childhood trauma they endured together. As for Joseph McEnroe, he also had a toxic relationship with his family. It was so bad that he had plans to take Michelle's name after marriage. In fact, his mother and two siblings hadn't heard from him the entire time he was in Washington until 2007 when an enraged Joseph called his mother. He reached out to her to let her know that he was very upset that she managed to get evicted from her apartment he helped her get. It ruined his credit, preventing him from renting a new place with Michelle in Seattle. According to his mother, in school, Joseph would sometimes get into fights, but for the most part, he never showed a violent side. In fact, he had a habit of protecting the vulnerable, often standing up to bullies and telling them to back off. He had a serious blood disorder that kept him from competing in sports. Instead, he read a lot of books and played imaginary games with his friends. He would later drop out of high school and work at a local fast food chain. He spent his early 20s playing video games such as Dungeons and Dragons and frequenting dating sites, which eventually led him to meeting Michelle. Michelle sounded like a typical angsty teenager, but if they were being abused, at least she had her brother, who she was close to. It almost sounds like Joseph was a good kid before he met Michelle. He doesn't sound like he got into any trouble at all before her. She was the bad influence here. Wait until we tell you what they actually did. Steph will tell us what happened on that fateful Christmas Eve after this short break. On the evening of December 24th, 2007, families all over Carnation were gathering for their traditional Christmas Eve feast. Judy and Wayne had originally planned to have Mary Victoria, Scott, and his wife Erica, as well as their two children, five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan, over to celebrate. However, according to True Crime Daily, Joseph and Michelle may not have been invited to this gathering. Mary Victoria decided not to go because she wasn't feeling well, which at the time she had no idea that decision would actually save her life. 
That evening, the Anderson home was lit up with Christmas lights, and inside you could smell a roast in the oven while Judy sat in her family room wrapping gifts in preparation for her grandchildren. Wayne sat nearby watching television until the rest of the family arrived. Little did anyone know, Michelle and Scott had other plans that didn't involve celebrating with their loved ones. Around 4 p.m., they both armed themselves with handguns and walked the 200 yards from their mobile home to Judy and Wayne's house across the rural 10-acre property. 30 minutes after their arrival, Joseph distracted Judy while Michelle shot at her father with a 9mm gun, but the gun jammed. This gave Wayne enough time to realize what was happening, and he saw an opportunity to attempt to wrestle the gun from his daughter. It didn't take long for Joseph to step in and shoot Wayne with his 357 Smith & Wesson Magnum, and then turn the gun on Judy. Both Judy and Wayne were shot point-blank in the head and had no chance of surviving. After making sure both victims were dead, the couple began cleaning the room as much as possible to get rid of all the blood splatter before dragging their bodies to the shed in the backyard. She should have taken that gun jamming as a sign to stop. I can't imagine how her poor father felt in that moment. You know, the moment you realize your child is trash. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she felt like it was too late to stop now that her parents knew their intentions. But you're right. She should have taken it as a sign. So they hid the bodies from the rest of the family. But what was the plan to carry on with dinner and make up a lie about where the mom and dad went? Well, one hour later, Scott, Erica, and their two children arrived and took off their jackets and shoes as they entered the house. Michelle and Joseph emerged and shot Scott four times in the head while he sat on the couch. They then shot Erica three times, but with what must have been an adrenaline rush, she was able to hop over the couch and run to the landline phone to call 911. With all the chaos that was happening in the house, the only thing the dispatcher could make out was Erica screaming, not the kids, before the line disconnected. During that time, Michelle had closed the distance and shot Erica two more times in the head. As soon as she realized she was out of bullets, she told Joseph to finish the job, and he did. He took the life of both children as they were screaming and clinging to their mother with a bullet to each of their heads. In response to the 911 call Erica was able to make while fighting for her life, authorities were dispatched to the Anderson property. This was something Michelle anticipated, so she quickly made her way to the front of the home to lock the gate to the driveway. When police arrived, the locked gate was enough for them to retreat, not knowing the severity of what took place minutes before in the lit-up home. Even after hearing that chaotic phone call, they didn't make an effort to check out the scene. As a mother, I can only imagine the adrenaline running through her wounded body to do whatever she could to save her babies. What kind of monster sees their own flesh and blood clinging to their mother and decides to take their life? I don't understand anyone who could take the life of a child. And also, what the hell did the police have to do that was so important in a city of literally no crime? Right? A locked gate is all it takes to deter police in this town? (laughs) (laughs) Judy was due for a shift at the U.S. Postal Service, and when she didn't show up, her coworker and friend Linda grew concerned. Instead of waiting, Linda took matters into her own hands and left work at 8 a.m. to head to Judy's property and see if she was okay. When she arrived, she found the gate locked, But unlike police, Linda decided to get out of her car and walk around the gate to get to the front door. She knocked a few times, but no one answered. She then decided to check if the door was unlocked, and it was. As soon as she opened the door, she was hit with a horrific scene. 
The lifeless body of Scott was lying on the floor, and at first Linda assumed it was a carbon monoxide poisoning, but as soon as she got closer, it was clear he had been shot in the head. Not too far from Scott was the body of Erica and baby Nathan, who had visible gunshot wounds. Because of the way Erica's body was positioned, Linda assumed it was Judy's body. She immediately wanted to run out of the house to call 911 on her cell phone, but she didn't have it with her that day. So instead, she ran into Judy and Wayne's bedroom to call the police from her landline. It went something like this. Sham, can you play the role of the operator? Oh, for sure. Hi, there's been a murder. I just came up. Judy works with me. Who's there? There's a baby, a man, and a woman. She's my best friend. Thanks, Sham. We're not going to go through the whole call. The call was incredibly heartbreaking to listen to. But due to the low crime rate in the area, the call lasted 30 minutes and the operator was able to stay on the line with Linda the entire time until police arrived. Linda would also share with the operator that Judy's daughter, Michelle, had been upset with her over money and she was afraid she might have been involved. She told the operator exactly where they could find Michelle and Joseph. Imagine dropping the ball as a police officer because you refuse to get out of your vehicle, fully armed, mind you, and walk around a gate. And then it took 30 minutes to get there when the bodies were found? What were they even doing? I guess they were in such a rush to get home to their families on Christmas Eve, they didn't even consider to do the bare minimum and at least do a welfare check. Yeah, so police finally arrived on the scene around 9.30 a.m., and the first people they found were Scott, Erica, and Nathan. Upon closer inspection, they found Olivia huddled close behind her mother, still clinging onto her. All four victims had been shot in the head execution style. They made their way around the property and searched for Judy and Wayne, who they found in the shed with several bullet wounds. In total, 14 bullets were used to annihilate three generations of Andersons in less than two hours. Three hours into the King County investigation, Michelle and Joseph decided to drive up there. Their goal was to play dumb and ask what had happened. Their entire demeanor appeared to be unfazed. Michelle told police that she and Joseph were actually on their way to Las Vegas to get hitched. After driving for a while, they got lost and decided to turn around and head back to Carnation. Okay, I know this is 2007 and GPS systems were more than available to use while traveling. What did they use? MapQuest? MapQuest is always wrong. It once sent me the wrong way down a one-way street. I almost died. (laughs) They're so slow, though, so I can only assume they got to the freeway and became overwhelmed and just turned around. Idiots. (laughs) Oh, just wait. (laughs) When detectives asked her when was the last time she'd seen her parents, Michelle said it was on Christmas Eve before heading out to Vegas. This prompted the detective to ask Michelle, why do you think we're here today? To which she responded by breaking down. She then said, and I quote, it's not Joe's fault. It's all my fault. As soon as I shot the gun, I felt so bad. Like, what the hell have I done? I'm a monster. End quote. The next question the detective had for her was, why didn't you spare the children? To which Michelle replied that she didn't want them to be scarred for life after witnessing their parents' murder. He then asked, why did you feel the need to annihilate your entire family? She told them she was tired of everyone stepping on her, making a claim that her brother owed her $40,000 and wouldn't pay her back. She was also upset that her parents had started pressing her for rent money for living in the mobile home on their property after one year of allowing her to live there rent-free. The motive was clear to detectives now. Money. Michelle and Joseph went on confessing to the murder of all six Anderson family members. 
The detectives took full advantage of this, and they wanted to find out if this was planned or had this hate for her family been brewing in Michelle, causing her to snap on Christmas Eve. She confessed to investigators without hesitation that she had been thinking about murdering her entire family for two weeks prior to the 24th. She had two weeks to talk herself out of it and didn't. Instead, she shared her thoughts with Joseph and they hatched a plan. It was now clearly premeditated. She continued to share that she wanted to kill her brother, mother, and father for abusing her over the years. Even going as far as to say, I wasted my life because of these assholes. It's not fair. After two hours of telling on themselves, they were both arrested. Girl, do yourself a favor. Ask the detective for the handcuffs, put them on, open the back of the police vehicle, and just get in. (laughs) This is the beginning (laughs) of your forever now. (laughs) Might as well with how they kept talking. (laughs) So now they know everything. They had enough evidence to use against the two, but needed the murder weapon. Michelle led them straight to where they discarded both guns in the Stillaguamish River, which is about an hour and a half north of Carnation. On December 28, 2007, Michelle and Joseph were charged with six counts of aggravated murder. The same day they were charged, Joseph gave a jailhouse interview with Seattle Times and gave the following statement, and I quote, I'm sorry that they are gone. They were my family too, you know, end quote. After that, he never spoke of the murders publicly again. My God, they're pathetic. (laughs) On June 27, 2008, Michelle also gave an interview detailing the time of the murder and stating that she wanted to die. She said, and I quote, I want the most severe punishment being the death penalty. I think if I kill a bunch of people, I don't deserve to live. I want to waive my trial, end quote. On October 16th of 2007, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg announced that he would seek the death penalty against Joseph and Michelle. April 28th, 2011, four years after the murder, Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Ransdale ruled that both perpetrators would be tried separately. In 2013, Judge Ransdale ruled that the state could no longer seek the death penalty for Michelle and Joseph, saying the Kings County Prosecutor's Office erred in the consideration of the strength of its evidence in deciding to seek the death penalty. In September of 2013, the state Supreme Court overturned Judge Ransdale's ruling on the death penalty and ordered Joseph and Michelle's trials to continue. Going into January of 2014, Judge Ransdale ruled that if the state fails to amend the charges to allege that there are insufficient mitigating circumstances to merit leniency, this would have him entertain a motion from Joseph to give him life in prison instead of the death penalty if he pled guilty. So for those of you who are like me that didn't go to school and study criminal law, mitigating circumstances are factors that lessen the severity of the criminal act which could convince the judge and prosecutor to cut the defendant a break. Those circumstances can include the defendant's young age, mental illness or addiction, or a minor role in a crime. He definitely had a major role in this crime, but clearly wasn't the mastermind. Oh no, he was obviously the puppet. So what did they end up getting sentenced with? Well, on March 25th, 2015, Eight years after that brutal Christmas Eve slaying, jurors found Joseph guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. Two months later, he was sentenced to life in prison. A year after Joseph's trial, they finally moved on to Michelle. 
During Michelle's trial, her sister Mary Victoria said that her sister had previously discussed harming their parents, and as soon as she heard the news about their murders, she knew Michelle had something to do with it. Michelle started crying when her sister turned and spoke right to her. She said, and I quote, You destroyed me, and look what you've done to your life. Do you care? What you've done to your family? Your brother loved you so much. You'll have a lot of time to think about it, and I don't know, it kills me. I loved you so much, end quote. Even after her sister confronted her, Michelle refused to apologize for anything. On March 4, 2016, jurors found Michelle guilty of six counts aggravated first-degree murder. In April of 2016, she was sentenced to life in prison as well. Three generations of a small-town family were taken on what was supposed to be one of the most wonderful times of the year. One greedy daughter and her lapdog of a boyfriend decided to not only take their anger out on the ones they believed deserved it, but four other innocent people who did nothing to them. Law enforcement failed to go the extra mile that night, but thanks to having friends that care and are willing to walk around a gate, this family received the justice they deserved in the end, even if they weren't there to see it. If you haven't heard from a close friend or family member this holiday season, I encourage you to give them a call and make sure they're okay. The holiday blues can come in many forms, whether it's anxiety, depression, or PTSD. For this, there's a 24-hour hotline called SAMHSA National Helpline. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration offers a confidential, free, 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year information service, available in both English and Spanish for individuals and family members facing mental and or substance use disorders. The service provides referrals to local treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. For more information, you can contact them at 800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Shan. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Well, one way to help with your mental health this holiday is to enhance your focus and wake up your mind. What better way to do that than to light a few peppermint candles? The scent of peppermint invigorates the brain, waking up your cells while sharpening your focus. This increased blood flow spurs clearer thinking according to the outlet, promoting clarity during any brainstorming session. So if you're thinking of making some life-changing decisions this month, light a candle and sit with it for a bit. Not to mention, it'll make your space smell amazing. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back in the spring for season four. Until next time... Stay vigilant, conjurers.